You're listening to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast, created by the Arthritis Foundation to help people with arthritis and the people who love them live their best lives. If you're dealing with chronic pain, this podcast is for you. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. Here, learn how you can take control of arthritis with tips and ideas from our hosts and guest experts. Welcome to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. My name is Stacey Courtney, and I'm excited to be your guest host today. I've been a longtime volunteer of the Arthritis Foundation. I believe this is my second or third podcast, so I'm excited to be back this time as a guest host. I've had rheumatoid arthritis for about 22 years. I'm currently the board chair for Georgia. I'm on the uh, Patient Leadership Council, and I just I love the foundation and all the work that we're doing. The topic for today is arthritis medication safety and adherence. So medications can help people with inflammatory arthritis live a very full life with limited pain, but for many, many reasons, people may not take their prescribed medications as they are prescribed. In this episode, we are going to be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Salt. She is a rheumatology nurse practitioner who works firsthand with patients and she's an associate professor at the University of Kentucky School of Nursing. And her research focuses in part on medication adherence in rheumatoid arthritis patients. And so I'm excited to to speak with Dr. Salt today because this is a subject that's very near and dear to my heart because although these medications are wonderful, sometimes they can be very scary. So with that, I'm going to let her introduce herself. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And I really look forward to discussing the topic. It's something obviously I've spent a long time researching and also involved with in patient care. I am I'm a nurse practitioner and have worked in rheumatology specifically since 2005. And then after working for about a year as a nurse practitioner, I started to ask questions and, and realized that to answer those questions, I was going to need a PhD. So that just led to about 18 years of research in medication-taking behaviors and specifically looking at quality of patient-provider communication, the quality of patient-provider relationships, intolerance to medications, and belief systems about medications, optimizing medications. Those are sort of the topics that I've spent the majority of my career looking at specifically in rheumatoid arthritis, um, but I have done some work in some other areas of chronic pain conditions. When you see patients, like what are their top concerns about these medications? I know how I felt. I was terrified because you, you read the small print or the fine print. It's very scary. So what do you tell patients? I think in everybody's process and everybody's journey with their condition is very different as far as even coming to terms with that this is a chronic condition. That in and of itself, I think, is is a journey that somebody has to sort of work their emotions through. Uh-huh. And then you can even start to look at, okay, this is what I'm looking at. This is what I need to try to address in my life. So patients really, once they get to the point of, okay, I'm going to be looking at taking medications, and it might be for a long period of time, then you can start to work with patients on, okay, where are we at with this? This is what my recommendation might be as far as your treatment plan goes. These are the medications that I would recommend. These are the the guidelines and the first-line treatment approaches. These are the side effects of those medications. I usually try to provide patients with additional sources of information from reputable 
organizations or groups for them to be able to kind of corroborate the information that I have. For a lot of people, that makes people feel more secure that the information I'm giving them is accurate. And then meeting them with, okay, where are you at with this? What are your worries? What are your thoughts? Have you heard anything else? And what we've learned through a lot of our research is that people get information not only from the sources that we're giving them or from their provider for themselves, but from communication with their peers, with the pharmacist, with somebody else that has taken this medication, maybe for a different condition. And that impacts that decision-making and those medication-taking behaviors. And so sometimes as a provider, it's working through, okay, you have a worry and it's coming from this source. Let's talk through that. That's how I sort of approach it as a provider to try to meet people where they're at and then work through the process together. I think my big thing when I started on biologics is they tell you if you have an inflammatory type of arthritis, you have an increased risk of lymphoma. But then you take these biologics, they can also increase your risk of lymphoma. So I've had many discussions with my doctor and and his uh, feedback has been, you know, if you have high levels of inflammation in your body, you are at more risk for certain cancers. So you, you have to combat that with this biologic. Right. There's always been the question of, is it the severity of the disease or is it a function of the medication? And that's always been an ongoing question with some of the side effects that we've reported with some of the medications for rheumatoid arthritis. How often do these things really occur? What can we do to even surveil and, you know, evaluate potential risk? Yeah. And let's touch a little bit on over-the-counter medications. I know some people are adamant about not taking a biologic and they think that they can treat it with Tylenol or ibuprofen. So if somebody says, do you know I'm going to treat it with Tylenol, how do you respond to that? I think because they are over-the-counter, there is some level of security that these medications are safe, but they are only safe as indicated. And that's with consideration of your other health conditions. Uh So if you have, you know, liver disease or kidney disease, you know, things like that, then those risks have to be recognized. And also whether any of the medications you have have Tylenol as part, as a component of that medication, but definitely they should be taken as indicated and probably within discussion with your healthcare provider. Of course, with rheumatoid arthritis, we know that you know, these are inflammatory autoimmune diseases and that these medications aren't really addressing the inflammation that we see with these conditions. There's not an over-the-counter medication that's going to treat rheumatoid arthritis necessarily, treat the the fundamental right. pathophysiologic process that's going on. I think that's another point to be taken is that the hope is, is of course, that we have low to no disease activity And that will prevent the potential damage to joints that occurs whenever we don't treat those conditions. And of course, over-the-counter medications aren't aren't indicated in that situation to prevent, you know, joint destruction and to achieve low to no disease activity. Yeah. And I think that's an important point you're bringing up too. A lot of people, when they're first diagnosed, they don't understand the difference between osteo and rheumatoid. And so they think you can just treat it with the -the over-the-counter, but they're not stopping the disease progression. So yeah, I I think that's something the foundation does really well too, is just educate the general population about the differences in all these arthritis. It's not just the old person osteo. Right. So you have to stop the progression of the disease. And it is complicated to kind of understand. It's a lot to take in. So I think you have to communicate that with your healthcare provider and be really honest too about 
you know, where your worries and your concerns are and barriers that you might have, I mean, financial and otherwise, and have that healthcare provider help you so that, you know, you have access to some medications that you need and things like that. Biologics and biosimilars. What's the difference? And what does it mean for you? It can be confusing. That's why the Arthritis Foundation provides guidance on what to consider in your own situation. Get the facts from the arthritis community's most trusted source of information. Visit arthritis.org slash biosimilars. There's a number of reasons that people might not take their medications as prescribed, such as insurance obstacles, you know, the expense of the drug, not understanding what the drugs do and then denying that their arthritis is serious enough to need medical treatment. And then other people might do non-traditional therapies or, or homeopathic type remedies. They think they can cure themselves. So let's talk a little bit about those. So the big one is insurance. What if your insurance does not cover this medication that your, your provider is, is prescribing to you? Well, there's various programs, you know, that help with payment assistance, co-payment assistance and things like that. Usually most offices now have a person that's designated solely for that purpose of trying to help people get the medications and afford the medications. So I think it's more, you know, communicating with your healthcare provider that, you know, I can't afford this medication or the copayment. And then work, the provider can usually work with whoever in that office helps to facilitate patients getting access to the medications that they need. That's just part of being honest with the provider in that office, trying to provide all the resources that they're aware of to help you be able to afford the medications. Yeah. And a lot of the, the drugs have the copay assistance programs now, which are very helpful. Right. And this is a little bit, this is sidebar to what you're mentioning too, is um, step therapy reform and patients that are forced to maybe start with a drug, a less expensive drug. Um, and that's something that a lot of the states have passed step therapy reform, but it's still you know, it's still a challenge for some people, especially like my current situation. My husband is changing jobs and I'm terrified I'm going to have to go back and start from square one again. So do you encounter that a lot in your practice, step therapy challenges with the insurance companies? Often the provider has to do a peer review where you have to talk with somebody, another provider on the phone. Often these people you know, might have a limited background in, in rheumatology or, and they certainly obviously have a very limited understanding of this specific patient that you would like to use a different medication for and the justification for a different medication choice. But typically after you have those conversations, and honestly, um, I found that if you use the evidence to support your decision, it works fairly well with mm -hmm. the insurance company um, being willing to pay for the medication that you were suggesting would be the best option for that particular patient. Whenever you need help, the Arthritis Foundation's helpline is here for you. Whether it's about insurance coverage, a provider you need help from, or something else, get in touch with us by phone, toll-free, at 800-283-7800. Or send us a message at arthritis.org slash helpline. Let's talk about patients who want to try everything else except traditional medications. So I will share a little bit about my story when I was diagnosed in 2005, it was right when I had gotten married and 
like you had said before, the biologics were just coming out. And my options were if, well, we wanted to have children. We weren't sure we wanted to have children, but the doctor said, okay, you can stay on prednisone right now, but we're not really sure these biologics are safe to start before you want to have a child. So I stayed on prednisone for about four years and then had my son. I don't know. I guess I started biologics in 2008. And so I failed about four or five of them. In the middle of all that, I said, nothing's working. (laughs) I'm in so much pain. I'm miserable. I've got this newborn baby. I'm just going to quit everything. So I'm going to try the homeopathic route. So I did, of course, you know, gluten-free diet, raw diet. I did something crazy called oil pulling, where I read a few gargles, sesame oil, it pulls the toxins from your body. I drank food grade peroxide, couldn't touch it, but you could drink it because that was going to rid me of the toxins. Um, I mean, I did everything. I did chelation and then I found myself literally in bed, unable to walk, you know, and I called my doctor in tears. I'm like, okay, I give up. But I did a lot of joint damage during that time thinking that I could cure myself. And so I think that there are some alternative therapies that you can partner with traditional medications, but the people that think you can cure this with just your diet or collagen or or whatever. So do you have patients that just kind of throw their hands up sometimes when nothing's working? Yes. Yes. I mean, there are definitely, I mean, understandably, you know, we don't have this perfect scenario where every time we pick the right medication for this particular person, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll get to that point. But, you know, it is to some degree, some trial and error, and that's frustrating. You know, you're not feeling well, and you've got things that you want to do and need to do and people to take care of. And everyone likes to feel in control of, you know, their situation. And so, Definitely is understandable to think that maybe whether it be homeopathic or dietary, whatever those different things might be an effective or uh, reasonable option. There isn't a lot of evidence to support dietary interventions to support, you know, changes in disease activity for rheumatoid arthritis patients. But we obviously do have a sufficient amount of evidence on the medications that are in the guidelines to recommend, you know, for recommendation for the treatment and disease management of rheumatoid arthritis. For my research, definitely patients get to that point. It usually is that point where they are non-functional. Mm-hmm. There's something in their life that they need to be able to do that they can't do. And they recognize I've got to get help, <laughs> you know, and that's when they're really willing to consider, you know, the, the different treatment options that are available. And that's when they start to consider the risks versus the benefits of the medications. Yeah, it was, it was quite a journey. And once I finally realized that my quality of life was, I mean, it was life-changing to find a biologic that finally worked. And I think that is the goal, right, is to find a treatment that works the first time and and not have to go through so many. And because that is frustrating when you're, you know, failing drug after drug after drug, and then you hear people say, well, have you tried this? You know, my grandmother was cured with something or my friend was cured. And so you're just like, whatever you can do to find pain relief. So right. And I think that that's a really important point is that those conversations, I think, with with friends and family members, sometimes that, and, and when people have had bad experiences with the healthcare system, that really influences some of these decisions. I've had a number of situations with patients where they would disclose, well, this this is what happened to me. And it wasn't a situation that a patient should have to go through, but it was helpful for me to know that that's the perspective from which they're coming. 
And I needed to provide additional support for to build that relationship with that person, for them to be able to understand that I heard them and try to figure out a way to move forward to build a trusting relationship, because that's what's necessary really for somebody trying to get to a place where they can do the things they want to do, meet their goals. I mean, that's really, and I think vocalizing those goals is really important as well. You know, what what is it that you want to do? Do you want to be able to do this, this sort of exercise, play tennis, get on the ground to play with your grandchildren? What are your sort of functional goals and, and how close are we to, to meeting those? Um, so, yeah. And I think that's a good point is everybody's goals are different. And I, you know, 10 years ago, my goal was to be able to get on the floor and play with my son, you know, and just roll around the floor when he was a baby, because that was a <laughs> back then. I mean, that was like, that was really hard to do to get on, get, get up and down. And, you know, now my goal is um, I like to exercise five to six days a week because I can, because I'm doing so well. So I think it's important that people not compare themselves to others because we all are at different phases of our journey. Get tips to help you take control of arthritis and put your mind at ease with the Arthritis Foundation's free ebooks. They're packed with trusted information from the experts on all kinds of topics. See the full menu at arthritis.org/ebooks. We put something on our social media. What is one reason that you've skipped your medication? One person said, along with all the normal ones, cost, side effects, insurance issues, denials, pharmacy, I've also skipped them for reasons such as I forgot, I didn't feel like taking it, I wanted to drink alcohol instead. And then when I was younger, what if I'm fine and the medications are making me sick and the doctors are trying to control me? So there's a lot in that one comment right there. So let's let's talk about the alcohol piece of it because I do know that it's a big deal for for patients that are on methotrexate especially. Right. And so I think that this is a really important topic to have a really again going back to the patient provider communication and being really open and honest about your other lifestyle habits. Obviously, you know methotrexate can cause we we have to monitor for potential hepatotoxicity or you know problems with your liver. And so if you drink alcohol with the medication, that's greatly increased. And so I think really being honest about your alcohol intake. And so, and I, I've had patients that have, you know, they, it's just a part of their life. It's something that they like to do socially on a pretty regular basis and, or, you know, it, it is maybe even a problem for them to some degree. Mm-hmm. That's not going to be the best choice medication for them. So it's really important that they ask about, you know, a use of substances that, you know, everybody's really honest about and other health conditions, you know, uh, I mean, certainly like hepatitis C and things like that. Other drug use, just being honest with people or the providers is critical to make for everybody to make good decisions about the best treatment options for that patient. So. Right, right. Another comment, I have a hard time giving myself the shot. And I think that's something that you definitely need to discuss with your provider, because if that is an issue, maybe the infusion is a better option for you if you're if you're scared to give yourself the, the injector at home. Right. And, you know, sometimes we've had patients that have come to the clinic to get their shot. Usually people work through there. They have somebody else give it to them and 
I think giving yourself a little bit of grace to say, you know, this is a justifiably sort of uncomfortable situation here, you know. I've had most patients have worked through, but there is, of course, options as far as the frequency that you give yourself a self-injection. That's that's something a consideration. Going to the healthcare provider to get the injection might be another option for some people. I actually found comfort in going to the rheumatologist and the infusion suite to get my infusion. So I had the option of doing my current medication at home and I just feel better doing it at the office. So yeah, there are options, but it just lessened my anxiety to be at the doctor's office when I was getting it. But there's probably something therapeutic about being around, you know, having these, being in this environment where you meet and talk to other people. One of my favorite stories when I first started with my infusions There was this older woman in front of me. She was probably in her 70s. And she said, you are so lucky to live in a time where you have biologics because she said, you know, her hands are crippled and and she has so much joint deterioration. And she goes, you're you're way ahead of the game. You know, 30 some years old, you're stopping the progression and you're so lucky to live in this this time where we have these medications and and they are scary, but they they are changing lives. And. And hopefully, I think the statistic now is, you know, one in five patients do not respond to any biologic or any type of medication, but we're fighting for more, you know, we're finding better treatments every single day. So there's hope for everybody. There's so many ways that we've made improvements and we continue to make improvements. And that's why, you know, I feel like that the research is so important. What the Arthritis Foundation is doing is so important so that we can continue to make progress and learn. And I think that Having your Arthritis Foundation with so much patient involvement really allows us to have more patient-perceived approaches to uh-huh. um, the way that we provide care so that it's not, so it really, it's not patient-centered just in, by title alone, but it actually uh-huh. is informed by patients. And that's really where a lot of my research has focused and, and a lot of the work that we're doing. So, And I like to hear that from you because um, you talk about the patient goals. And, you know, people say we are the experts on our own condition, our own health. And a lot of doctors, it's more about their goals sometimes. It's not like, what is the patient goals? We worked on a project a number of years ago working on patient provider communication and a, a measurement of the patient perception. Because what we found was that all the measures were really coming from the provider's perspective. And a lot of that, honestly, was around billing, you know, about their quality of relationship is much more aligned with what we would consider for a healthy relationship. People laughing, people knowing about each other, you know, Mm -hmm. um, knowing about the healthcare provider and maybe their family and vice versa and laughing about things. And I mean, because these relationships, you know, the the patients that you have are are patients first, you know, you've seen their children grow up, you know, them go through retirements and, you know, go on vacations and all those, you know, really hard sometimes and and also very happy life events. And I'm going to address one last comment on social media. One reason that this person does not take their medication, uh, international travel requires refrigeration, uh, the live vaccines. So that is, that is a good point. Some of the medications have to be refrigerated. So how do you handle that with travel? Generally, as far as vaccinations go, the the best option is to get the live vaccinations prior to starting the biologics from my experience. But sometimes, you know, with different, depending on where you're traveling, um, Mm -hmm. obviously there's maybe different immunizations. So that can get a little bit sticky. Yeah. This has been a wonderful conversation. Like I said, I love how involved you are with making sure that your patients are happy. 
So what are your top three takeaways from this conversation that you'd like to provide our listeners? I think my top three takeaways would just be trying to establish that really strong relationship with open communication with your healthcare provider, trying to establish that that partnership with your provider. And then um, to just being really honest about your worries and your concerns and where you are with the journey. And that allows for that communication to take place where your concerns are addressed and that you feel comfortable with moving forward with a, a treatment plan. I really feel strongly about making sure that you're using or accessing reputable sources of information whenever you are making these decisions. There are a host of really great resources, including the Arthritis Foundation, but there's a lot, you know, that we all know the internet has experts coming from all directions. Mm-hmm. And so definitely urge people to, to be a, a good consumer of information and sort of consider that whenever they're weighing the value of that information. If you heard something and you're worried about it, then communicating with your healthcare provider and, you know, sometimes they can just say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that blog mm-hmm. or I've had other patients that have had that concern or worry. Let's talk about that a little bit further and I can provide you with a little bit more background on that particular situation. So my top three are very similar to yours. I would say number one is, especially for the newly diagnosed, just helping them understand that this is not osteoarthritis, it is rheumatoid or other inflammatory type of arthritis, and you have to stop the progression of the disease. And though there are alternative therapies that might be helpful, you know, it's recommended that you do try a disease-modifying drug because it can be life-changing. And though it comes with some risks, the reward and the quality of life is definitely exceeds that. I'd say number two, uh, open and honest with your doctor, like you said many times, and just sharing your goals, sharing your fears, your goals. And I've had the same rheumatologist for about 20 years now, and he has become like my family, you know, and, and he knows he knows what my long-term goals are. And, and they do change depending on how I'm feeling each time I, I visit him, but definitely open and honest. And then third, I would just say the information that you receive on the internet or from other sources validate that um, because you can go down a rabbit hole really quickly and get some false information. But also I would, you know, encourage people to, to join one of the connect groups with arthritis foundation, because that's what we're here for is we share our fears and our concerns. And we talk about, you know, all of these different things, why you're scared to take your medications or why you, you know, what your choices are at any given time. And so I do encourage people to, to get involved with us. When you have people that are in the same situation as you, it really does help on your journey. So Dr. Salt, I want to thank you for your time. You are wonderful. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Thank you to all of our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this Yes, Arthritis Foundation podcast, and we hope that you'll join us on our next one. Thank you so much. Thank you. As part of their support of the Arthritis Foundation, this episode was brought to you in part by AVI, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen, and Kenview. The Live Yes with Arthritis podcast is independently produced by the Arthritis Foundation. This podcast aims to help people living with arthritis and chronic pain live their best life. People like you. For a transcript and show notes, go to arthritis.org slash podcast. Subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch. 